0: this week's episode of Real Talk with Outperformers, we're doing another special episode and throwing it back to four of our past guests who have had some really tough challenges to face and have worked hard to come out stronger. Here are some of the stories and individual journeys that you guys really enjoyed and we thought we'd share once more. To start with we've got Gary Fay. Gary has gone through a difficult journey that included hidden depression and gambling addiction resulting in a debt that reached almost two million all while in the peak of his career. At this time he was leading then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's protection team and also was executive officer advising the then Australian Federal Police Commissioner Andrew Colvin. Flash forward Gary is now an ambassador of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association and he's really evolved and is a new human being. Let's see what he has to say about evolving through these difficult challenges.
1: And I just kept getting further and further down a deep, dark hole. And eventually you have a come to Jesus moment and you get this option in life, whether or not you're going to decide to pick yourself up and try and move forward, or you're basically going to give in to the past and you're going to give in to the uh, to the tough times and you're going to give in to those internal feelings that you've been struggling with. And, you know, it took a long time. That's not an instant that you have that decision to make or, or it's not an instant where it feels like the decision is made. I was probably sitting in that void for a year, two years after I lost my career, and I was still getting worse and worse and deeper and deeper, and it wasn't until I started to really shift my perspective, shift my mindset and really look for a way out, I started to look for things that resonated with me. I didn't see, I didn't see me and anybody else that had struggled. You know, I was an alpha male. I was successful. I was at the top of my game. Everybody was looking at me saying, you know, look at this guy. This is the guy you want to be like. And I didn't see people like me struggling. Mm. So I didn't know what to do. And for 10 years, I hid it from myself because I didn't know what it was. So I I barely could come to terms with it myself. I hid it from family and friends. And I realized if I was going to get out of it, I'm going to have to do it myself. Mm. And so I went away. I... I learned from, I worked with, and I studied under experts around the world. I knew if I could understand it, that I could fix it, Mm. that I'm a problem solver by trade. And if I could understand it, I could fix it. So I looked into neuroscience, I looked into habit formation, I looked into psychology, I looked into peak performance, I looked into routines. And basically, on the back of a couple of years of some very hard work, uh, a lot of trial and error, a lot of pain, I eventually found a place that I felt successful. I finally found a purpose, I found my passion for life again, and I actually found some peace from the noise that was going on in my head and, you know, over the last five years I've been very fortunate that I've been able to take that and actually transplant it into other people's lives, especially high performers that are struggling, uh, especially people that have reached a great level of success but maybe don't have that fulfillment, uh, whether it's individually from a business level or even at teams. And that opened up an opportunity to be the an ambassador for the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association. I get a chance to speak on mental health, on addiction, on peak performance, uh, and on success. And, uh, it, it's been a fantastic ride the last five years. Um, you know, I, I don't say this flippantly, but, you know, as I mentioned, I lost $2 million, my career and my reputation, and it was almost the best thing that ever happened to me. I certainly didn't feel that at the time. And I'm not proud of. Some of the things that I did and uh, went through, but if I didn't, I also wouldn't be where I am today. And um, you know, it's it's a great place where I am today.
2: Yeah, mate, you sound really fulfilled today. One of the things I, I was curious about—we you know, we got talking about this the other day a little bit—but you know, this this sense of addiction, right? You know, you're addicted to the gambling as you described it, right? But I'm wondering as you've learned more about yourself, uh, you know, you study psychology and neuroscience side. Was there also, and I'd love to understand the addiction of other things around it that compound and support the whole ecosystem that you were in, right? Like I, you mentioned before, you're the, the alpha male and you mentioned, um, you know, that sense that people looked up to you. Was there a sense of needing to create, keep that facade, that sense of I'm addicted to that and I'm also addicted to this? Um, how did it play out?
1: Yeah, look, I, it, it took a lot of soul searching. Um, for 10 years, I battled a gambling addiction. I, I, I did what I considered trying to solve the problem I saw in the mirror. And the problem I saw in the mirror was a gambling addiction. Hmm. And I was quite successful at solving that problem and would go for six months at a time without gambling. And, um, but every time I would find myself falling deeper and deeper back in a hole hmm. after that six-month period, and eventually I had to look a little deeper and, and I started to wonder whether it was the depression that was forcing me down or, or taking me down the gambling path. Mm. So gambling became my escape. Mm. And in reality, what I was addicted to was the escape. Mm. But eventually I had to even look further than depression. It wasn't an escape from the depression. It was actually an escape from my ego. Mm. And I talk about this not being a beat your chest on the best type of ego. But a protectionist type of ego, uh, especially for high performers, especially for alpha personalities, being vulnerable is very difficult. Mm. And so, uh, you know, as, as I said, I classed myself as a problem solver, but if I had a problem and I couldn't solve it, that went against everything that I knew about my own identity. Mm. And so you're right. The addiction becomes to being that person, uh, being the problem solver, being the alpha, being someone that's not vulnerable. Uh, the addiction becomes in protecting. That version of the ego, Mm. and ultimately, you use. I I ended up using, and other people use distractions to escape from confronting the thing that I needed to confront, which was that vulnerability. And people will escape into, you know, I escaped to gambling, but people will do it to drinking. They'll do it to to drugs. Some people to laziness. Mm. We've also got people that do, you know, destination addiction you know i'll be happy when i'll be happy when i have a holiday i'll be happy when i get the promotion i'll be happy when i get that relationship yeah all an escape and all a, all a, a chance to uh to not confront the thing that is most uncomfortable in their life and ultimately it leads to uh, being unfulfilled and the longer you're unfulfilled and the further you're away from your own purpose the deeper and deeper you're going to get and uh if you if you're up high it's a long
2: fall yeah it's uh I feel you because I think, you know, I talk to friends all the time, you know, and, and myself. I, I've been through these moments where, you know, this sense of depression or sense of, you know, a uh, lack of clarity in who you are and why, why you're doing something. And then you tighten it up and you sharpen it up and you, you work through these things. But um, but I, 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 I tie into that what piece you, you know, you shared before about depression. You know, what, what is it in your world? Like, what is the definition? What was depression for you? What did that look like?
1: Look, the the best analogy that I can come up with is imagine hugging your children, the people that you are supposed to love the most, and not want to be anywhere near that hug. Yeah, That you want to be nowhere near the people that you're supposed to love the most. Mm. That is an indelible mark on my brain. I I vividly remember having that thought. Mm. And it was closer to the end of that 10-year period that I started to recognize that something deeper was wrong um i didn't know what it was and i certainly didn't know what to do about it mm. but in one of those moments i i knew something was wrong that's pretty confronting i i don't know it's it's horrendous i i don't know how else to describe the feeling and every time you know every time i even share that that piece it it gets to me it's going um on. and you know it doesn't matter whether it you know for me at the time it was um it, it was it was children in my life um But it doesn't matter if it's your parents it doesn't matter if it's your partner Mm. and these people that you are supposed to be with and supposed to love and want to love and do love Mm. but you don't want to spend time with them or you don't want to be in their embrace uh it's a not many worse feelings that i've had
0: Next, we have Dinesh. Dinesh is a man who has overcome extraordinary challenges. His captivating journey serves as an inspiration to business leaders and owners, encompassing themes of resilience, disability inclusion, innovation, and redefining perceptions. Let's hear what he has to say about overcoming challenges.
3: And they say that he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Uh, I had a pretty good how at that point, so life was good. I was 25, I was a medical student, I had everything. Mm. Uh, But it all changed on the 31st of January 2010 when I had a car accident. And uh, it was a wet road, my car aquaplaned, it had a rollover. And when the car landed, I tried to get out and my fingers didn't work. And I realized I couldn't feel my legs or anything below the chest. And I couldn't move. So I knew that I was paralyzed in that moment. I knew that I had a spinal cord injury. And I knew that within seconds my life had changed and I'll never be the same again. And oh, man, I wish oh, I wish I could explain what that felt like, that moment in time where mm. I realised that. I mean it, it was horrifying. Right, It's Mm. horrible because you never expect something like this to happen to you. You never expect something like this to happen to you. But I've also realized that things happen to people all the time. I work in the emergency department now. I see people sadly pass away. I see people having strokes and heart attacks. I see people going through all sorts of terrible stuff, domestic family violence. And and you never think that... um, you just think that these things don't happen, like they happen on TV or you read it on the news. But I know now that it happens to people every day. Mm. And, uh, but when it happened to me, it was a shock. And that's, that's what changed my life.
2: It's hard for for someone that I, I, I'd imagine listeners to empathise with this. The only way they can really empathise is to actually have been through it, like genuinely um, experience what you've been through um, but as you say, there are a lot of people who've had traumas of different types, but this particular trauma is completely life-changing. You know, I've had what I would call versions of traumas that are nothing like what you've been through, mate, and I never would want to compare that. But when I when I hear what you're saying, I, I, I always am curious to, to ask the question, well, how do you move through that? You know, And, and you've looked at this idea of purpose, and you shared about your why, right? Um, now, there's practicalities, Right, there's the practicalities of getting through that and then there's the mindset around that. Um, and I wonder if you'd be open to sharing a bit more about that why in the moment of transitioning, right, in the moments that come beyond that. You know, that, that four years you summarised of building yourself back up, mm. would have, I would imagine was a long four years. But I'd love you to tap into what shaped progress at that time.
3: Yeah, so I think going back to the why, I found that why, uh, when I was going through depression in law school, so I didn't have that purpose or that sense of what am I on this planet to do? What energizes me? What's important to me? Who am I? I didn't know that until the age of about 2021. Yeah. And it was depression that helped me find it because I think we, you know, depression is a complex thing, but, uh, and there's, a There's a physiological side to it. There's a chemical side to it. There's a biological side to it. But I think there's also a uh, psychological aspect to it where um, if you think about how many people, how many of us uh, have at one point in our life been in that unhappy relationship or that unfulfilling job or doing something every day and we don't know why, Mm. right? So I was that guy. I was in uh, I was in a relationship that wasn't fulfilling. I was pursuing a career that, uh, in a way, like I, I appreciate the law now, but at the time I was pursuing it in a way that that was wrong, and mm-hmm. I was materialistic, and I was mm-hmm. so I was trying to get all this stuff from the world and trying to uh, trying to fill my own cup, and I just crashed, and then I realized, oh man, like. Mm-hmm. I started to see a doctor when I was going through the depression and one, what my doctor did for me changed my whole world. So I just realized that what is actually important is what we do for people and how we can leave this world a better place. And, you know, I found so much meaning in what he did for me. Mm. That's why I decided to become a doctor. So that, that's how I found my why. So when, I had the accident. I, I, I never let go of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to still become a doctor and to practice medicine because it was so close to my heart. Uh, so I never lost sight of that. And if I knew, A, if I gave it up, I would regret it forever. And I knew, B, that I only have one shot at life. Mm-hmm. There's no room for regrets, right? There's we get this one shot we get this one chance and if you have regrets you, you you don't get that back yeah so that burning desire kept me going through the hard times um and also uh there was this poem that uh an ex-girlfriend of mine hung up by uh by my curtain by my bedside um and that poem was Invictus. So Invictus uh, the word means undefeated or invincible. And towards the end of the poem, the author says that no matter how bloody his head becomes, he will not bow down, and that he is the master of his fate and the captain of his soul. Mm. I didn't want to be defeated. I wanted to be the master of my fate. I wanted to be the captain of my soul. And some days I didn't know how we were going to get through. Some days I didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring. Some days I was, my head was bloody. It was literally bloody at the start. And, uh, but you just take it one day at a time. You just go forward one little bit at a time. And even if it, if you're walking into the darkness, you just keep going Mate, that's inspirational in itself
2: i'm uh i'm sort of getting a bit emotional myself because i'm p- picturing myself having to go through what you're thinking as you are explaining those words um but I, I i tapped into something you shared before and you said this idea of we only have one short at life and those narratives don't just pop into your head you know you talked about your doctor you talked about you know finding that why where where did where did that come to come from? Uh, how did you develop that? Where did that idea of
3: one shot come from? One of the manifestations of depression when I was going through depression uh, is a preoccupation with death. Mm. And ironically, I used to think about death a lot when I was depressed, mm. which has got me thinking. And there's this uh, concept in stoicism, which you and I have talked about, uh, which is memento mori, which mm-hmm. means meditate on your death, and it's not a it's not a morbid thing it's not a it, it's it's not a negative thing it just means when you meditate on the fact that our time on this planet is limited and we could die tomorrow, it actually truly helps you live mm-hmm. so um I just used to think about death a lot when I was depressed. I just realized, man, I'm going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. And uh, uh, it, it just kind of woke me up to this. Because when you're young, I think sometimes you think you're immortal, right? You don't think about that. You don't think that the years are going to tick by. You don't think that, you know, like, you, you just don't think, you, you think that summer's never going to end. Mm. But uh, when, you, when you think about it, that way you suddenly realize, okay, I am mortal. I am going to die one day and I have one chance and that, that, that's actually what helped me.
2: I want to stay around that party world because there's a interesting frame that I think some, some people at different stages of their life can be challenged by and I think you talked about that with that pursuit of law and you're Mm -hmm. talking about this materialism and you can say I'm going to have one shot at it and chase materialistic experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can say well that's why I'm here. But you found something in that, right? And I am staying in this zone because while there's all these practicalities of your story, I think a lot of people want to understand how you think, right? And I I want to understand how you think. I think it's really cool. But what when when you think about that that shift away from materialism, mm. and you you unpack the idea around you know having one shot, why did you hand? Why do you think you landed on helping people from a guy that was chasing a uh, you know chasing the uh, the legal profession and all the glitz and glamour that's supposed to go with it that comes on the TV, right? And yeah,
3: yeah. the money. Yeah, well, I think as a lawyer you can help people as well. So, you know, my, my frame around that changed, but I think it's just its literally what my doctor did for me and my mum likes to say that by helping one person, you may not change the world, but you'll change the world for them and I say this all the time. Mm-hmm. So actually by, by just... Helping one person by, you know, making a difference in one person's world and one person's life. Mm. That is an incredibly powerful thing. And that's a worthwhile thing to have done. Mm. You know, I, I thought after I emerged from the depression and after my doctor treated me, I thought, if I can do this for just one person in my career, then I'll be happy. Mm. I can I, I, I would feel like that is a worthwhile thing yes so that that's it, it was really from what someone else did for me I just wanted to do that for other people
0: Brad Smith was a kid that grew up in Tassie in a working class family and he put the wheels in motion at the age of 17 to start a business which involves his forever obsession motorcycles along the way he faced many challenges involving both his business and his personal life that he had to overcome let's hear a little bit about how he did that
4: I decided that uh, there's a huge opportunity for us to take the motorcycle dealership. I don't believe consumers care about the dealership anymore. You go to pick up a vehicle from a dealership just because that's the point you pick it up. You do all your research online. I don't think there's anything about the dealership. So I thought if we're going to really like reinvent and build a community around the motorcycle, we've got to actually build a community space. So I thought let's take the motorcycle dealerships. Um, let's put like micro brewers in there barbers, coffee roasters. Let's put a chaplain on so there's like a purpose and meaning behind, especially men, 97% of our customers are under 50 year old males. Let's do something that matters with these guys. And I thought if that's gonna happen, I need to develop the sites. So we purchased our our, um, our, um, showrooms um, and went to develop them. You know, Frankston was 77 apartments, 14 stories high. that's a huge risk. We yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, did the same. Was plan was to do the same in Hobart and, and Brisbane and across the country. So, and how's that risk pay off? I mean, there's plenty of capital outlaid there. Oh man, are, are we going to start with failures? <laughs> well, you know, I did say the ones lead, you've leaned into, you've gone the other way. It's, uh, no, it's perhaps there's a lesson here for for young players. But yeah, it is. It yeah. was. Incredibly difficult. I I had things going against me anyway, media coming against me, legal stuff coming against me. My business in 2016 went from making great money to losing money. It was was just one of those moments where I took a risk, but my back was against the wall. I was already, this vision kind of took place and started when things had already started to move against me. And I thought a kind of mantra that, I've lived by, and my parents drummed into me was that vision overcomes challenge. Like if you've got a challenge, you better go get a bigger vision. <laughs> and so this was, in 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 reflection, like looking back over the last six years, the, this development stuff was really an outworking of that. Let's let's swing it for the fence. And at that point, I felt like I had nothing to lose. So um, we did we did have some we had some success in it, but ultimately the vision hasn't yet come together. So, at this point, you'd have to say the harsh reality is it failed. Yeah. So, but the thought pattern behind it and where it pushed us to in that time, man, incredible. Um yeah it sent the business the other way it sent us into e-commerce uh, the big part for us is that motorcycle the, the motorcycle industry is incredibly regulated by the department of infrastructure so you have to audit your motorcycles they have to approve your motorcycles you know you can't just make it up there's a very strict process for importing a motorcycle and manufacturing a motorcycle um, and you know, that's that's a difficult process too. And there's often recalls. So if you look at any manufacturer, they all have recalls. Um, but I had two things happen at the same time. I had a competitor make an allegation against me that we were rebirthing one shipment of motorcycles. So we've sold probably 10,000 bikes, one shipment's 82. The allegation was that there was a rebirthing, which means change the VIN numbers, the serial numbers, the ID of the bike, um, which the allegation then gets picked up to say, what's the advantage of that? which really that's where my argument starts. I sold the same bike for the same price to the same customers and didn't change, and that came out in court. and in, uh, Ultimately, we weren't charged of any of the allegation regarding rebirthing, but the media blew that up massively, like incredibly, and even in our court case, it took three years to get to court. Um, the judge in his final remarks said there was media from police that was ultimately exaggerated and ultimately misleading. But I do nothing with that. I'm telling you, hopefully people listening can make their own view. But what's the point in going to the media to try and get the truth out there? They don't care. Like They just want more attention. It's going to drag me more through the mud. So we just decided to put our heads down, but up, go and build a successful business. And this time I'm going to tell less people about it and just build a massive fence around my house. <laughs> but for, So the answer to that story is though, it intertwined into those allegations, we actually failed an audit, which was for noise warning labels in our exhaust pipe, um, for the uh, identification, the certification of our taillight, the ID was on the inside of the lens, not the outside of the lens. There was things like that. So you can look it up. It, it says in the media article one line, in all the media articles, one line of truth, which is these were <laughs> these were non-safety related issues and everyone else recalled their bikes for that type of thing. KTM and Honda had similar issues at the same time. Um, They got to do a recall. If you wanna come and get your nose warning labels put on, of course we'll do it for you. Um, We got fined for it, 25 grand fine. I pleaded guilty to that. I don't know if you say guilty, we accepted the fine um, and moved on. No customers complained, no one really cared, but the media did. (laughs) Um, And they made it sound like the big issue, the big allegations, because we got fined for this um, audit, this twenty five grand fine, they kind of intertwined the story together. Very difficult to navigate as someone just reading Google. And yeah. Mate,
2: it's 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 hard, right? And I I can resonate with. I've been through this mm. what I'd call distractions, right? Yeah. These, these things <laughs> in my life where uh, you know you you do lose focus because if you don't focus on that at that point in time, as yeah. much as you want it to go away, yeah, it doesn't go away by itself, yeah. And you know when you look at the, the focus and the attention versus where it is today, yeah, right, and the energy you have now. What's the, what's it feel like as a a leader, you know, pretty sizable business, right? Oh. What, what's what's the focus shift look
4: like? Man, my biggest complaint to my wife is that I haven't done my real job for so long. <laughs> so long. My job is to build incredible motorcycles that add unmatched value to my customer and matter to my customer so much that they buy my bike. Yeah. That's pretty simple. Like, that's, and that's so awesome. I love, like, I'm so passionate about that. But if I work 50 hours a week, I probably do that for like one hour, two hours. <laughs> the rest of the time is compliance, even capital raising, getting the gathering the resources to be able to do that. So um, for me, this distraction word you talk about, my, my biggest risk, man, it's so difficult. And in a, such a Comp- like com- compliance heavy industry, it's a real risk because you can't be flippant, you can't be reckless and as I grow, I've got to be more of a steward, I've got to be more disciplined, I've got to be more statesman-like. Um, I've got to say no to a lot of opportunities and I think the ultimate way to take an entrepreneur out is to give him another opportunity. <laughs> shiny thing syndrome,
1: right? Yeah.
0: Next, we have Nicholas Ingate. Nicholas is the brilliant mind behind the game-changing business Sabbatical Travel. Honest and straight-talking, Nicholas's pursuit of purpose paired with his unwavering tenacity shaped his journey from the corporate world to a wanderlust-driven entrepreneur. Let's hear what he had to say about the many challenges he faced.
2: What What was it? You know, clearly... You've sold for a reason. I, just tell us a bit more about your own personal journey with yeah, respect sure. to being in the grind, building yeah. something, running an organisation. What did that look like for you? So I was very fortunate at
5: the age of t- twenty-four, and there was a business in Sydney which still exists called The Projects, and it was right in when two thousand and eight was was popping off, and our business back then was an experiential business, and they had, we had Pernod Ricard as a client, um, an Audi. And we were, there were three business partners. Um, and we were just doing really cool events in Sydney. I came along, um, just as a freelancer, just looking for work before I was, I was, I had booked a one way ticket to America. I always had a calling or a, or a yearning to, to live in LA. Don't know where that was. Probably, probably came from watching Baywatch as a young kid, <laughs> I would imagine. So. I was working in that business for six months and then just got to know the founders really well and basically came to them one day and say hey i'm going to america with or without you but here's just a one-page business plan of sorts so like let's go into business and i'll take the projects to america and they just thought sure like whatever so we 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 did a deal we all became even business partners and i just went one-way ticket with a with a credentials document which just showed you know, all the business we had in Australia and I just landed in LA and thought it was going to just naive 25 year old, thought it would be easy just to call up, um, you know, CMO of Audi, CMO of Pernod Ricard, all these different businesses that we already had case studies for. Not only did they not care about us doing the Audi launch in Australia, they didn't even know where Australia was. <laughs> so it was a real like slap in the face going, oh shit, we got to start from scratch. But I love that. Like, yeah. It was it was just amazing. So it was a, you know, so the project still exists and it was a, we are a, um, start off as an experiential business, but then a a full blown brand consultancy with offices in Sydney, LA, New York, and London, and worked with Samsung and Apple and Porsche and Audi and Dom Perignon and Louis Vuitton. And we were producing fashion shows. We were doing brand strategy. We were doing content shows. Um, and just opened my eyes to this whole world of of branding and consumerism and all that kind of good stuff but after 10 years i just you know went once you've gone to art basel five times and you've done new york fashion week and you've pitched vanity fair and you've won the business to do the oscars after party and you're working with these celebrities and you are have million dollar budgets to all these different things i just got to a point where like i just knew i was out of alignment and i just kind of just knew that the the world didn't need another super premium vodka brought to you by pdd so i was just like i'm out and sold my half of the business to my business partners and this journey of um of sabbatical kind of started then yeah, at the wow. end of 2019 wow. so you just didn't feel right at some point mm. i don't know if it well, definitely it wasn't burnout it just i just kind of just got to a point where yeah just i just identified that the mm-hmm. i didn't love it as much mm-hmm. and i enjoyed the hunt meaning you know, would ask the team, what five clients did we want to work with that year? And people would say vanity fair or Nike or, da, da. and that was my job to go out and do whatever it takes to at least get us in the room with those brands and those decision makers. And then that was my job to get us in the room and then kind of hand it over to the team going, well, we're here now. We've got 48 hours to prepare a proposal or a pitch. And I just loved that notion of pitching ideas, um, responding to brief, um, pitching against other, other different agencies. Mm-hmm. It's just the hunt was uh
2: enjoyable but that i think just burnt out after 10 years yeah wow were you a uh you know that hunt was it the thrill of the chase or did you love the dopamine hit when it when it when you landed in the room?
5: What, what, what drove you i think this was like the deepest deepest answer um bit of male vulnerability here yeah. i think i always had this kind of belief that i'm not enough mm. so to f- pile on that i would just go the hunt and The validation that came from winning a piece of business kind of like ego checked the box of like, you're enough. And then that feeling would sneak back in, and then I have to go get get another client. So it was, it was an unhealthy relationship, but it looked good on paper because we had all these amazing clients and da da da. And I think through around 30s, when I started to do some, you know, inward personal development work and all these things started getting teased out. So even though I was really good at it, it came from an, came from a, a place of um scarcity or perhaps inauthenticity
2: hmm.
5: um so i think maybe that had something to do with it as well
2: in addition to just the point where like the world does not need more shit. so yeah yeah i'm out i get it i mean it resonates with me i've, I've, I've conceived myself and what you just shared there What um what i find interesting and i'd be curious to see if this plays out now with your business because you've talked about service yeah i mean that vulnerability that you talk about um, around not being enough, and yeah. it being it, it actually drives you right. Like there's yeah. an achievement component to that. Totally. Like. There's an opposite side to that
5: that's perceived as a, as a good side as well. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't think that feeling of not being enough will ever go away. It just the level I can turn up and turn down. So sometimes it's really loud, and that might drive some behavior or actions that I don't necessarily like. But I can also just acknowledge it and mm-hmm. listen to it and go, oh cool. Like you're there."
2: Yeah. Just yeah. How do you tame it? I mean, there's I, me, I'm listening to you and and people listening to this have stuff like that going on in their mind, right? So, how do you, how have you tamed it personally when you go, oh, that little voice is firing up? I want to kind of do this for the right reasons. I want to, I still want to chase, make a dent. I still want a result. I still feel it's important to do something meaningful because clearly you wouldn't launch a business if you didn't want to do something meaningful. Well, it's kind of a good conversation because I, I'd love to get your perspective because you work with a lot of um, high
5: achieving organizations you know ambition ambition looks good yeah. and you know the reason why we have cars and planes and electricity and wi-fi and all those different things i i assume but you know ambition can come from a really positive place like i want to change the world right yeah. but i think sometimes it can also come from the, the kind of the places that we're talking about this feeling of not enough or maybe a comparing to my father or i need to be better than my brother or, or something like that which yeah for me it kind of comes from like a scarcity place